They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Hey, do badders. Welcome to Bad Boy Running. Our next guest is someone who was recommended to us by Robbie Britton. During the course of the conversation with him, he was talking about Shona's work to do with sleep and how she's actually at the forefront of understanding how sleep affects performance and, and what we can do to try and um, benefit the power from the power of sleep and also how to avoid just conking when you're not getting it. So we, uh, we then emailed Shona. She's been kind enough to come on. So welcome on the podcast. Shayna Halston. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for the invite. Um, thanks for getting up early for me. So appreciate it. So for Dubaz, if you're Shayna has basically interviewing with two old men who look like they've not slept in in weeks. So. It's very appropriate for the topic, really. <laughs> yeah, it was all, it's a kind of a test, isn't it, to kind of prove why, why we need sleep. Yeah, it's funny. People people try to tell me that they've had sleep and that they're, you know, they're doing fine. I'm like, I can look at you and I can tell that you're, you're sleep deprived. But you guys don't look too bad, so you've not too much to worry about. How did you get into sleep? Yeah, it's a funny one. So... My um, PhD back in the day, was, I, which I actually did in, in Birmingham, in Brumland, um, and that was really looking at fatigue. So I was really interested in this idea. I was looking at fatigue and overtraining, and then um, when I finished that, I got a job at the Institute of Sport um, in Canberra here in Australia, and um, the role there was really around fatigue and recovery, but we kind of worked out that we don't really know anything about fatigue, and it's very complicated, and it's a bit of a hot mess. So really started looking into the recovery space. And then, of course, what's the best you know, tool that we have to recover is obviously sleep. Uh, and just found that working with some of our elite athletes, they just didn't really know what good sleep was, um, asking questions around, you know, I wake up four or five times at night to go to the bathroom, is that normal? And so we just kind of went down this path of trying to understand athlete sleep because when we went to the science, to the literature, there really wasn't anything um, to really talk about how the really top-level athletes uh, sleep. And we always just thought they'd sleep good. You know, they train a lot, they mm. must be tired, they must sleep good. Um, but after we started talking to them and started really, um, you know, delving deep into the world of sleep, we sort of realised, wow, there's, you know, there's, there's a few issues here. And um, that was sort of how we sort of got interested in um, understanding sleep in athletes. Is, is that because, were, were most athletes not sleeping well because of things like stress and mental um, strain or were they not sleeping because of a physical um, like burn from the from the exercise. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be lots of different reasons, and I think some of the reasons depend on the sport that the athlete's doing. So, um, athletes who have to get up early in the morning, uh, and in Australia we like to do that very well. Um, we like to get some <laughs> of our athletes up in the middle of the night, practically to to train. Um, so you know having athletes wake up at five o'clock in the morning to train is not unusual. Um, and that just limits their ability to actually get sleep. Like the dura the time that you would need to go to bed to get the sleep that you need if you have to wake up early 
um, is mm-hmm. a real challenge. So early starts are not great. Um, uh, com- competition times, so, you know, so different sports might play at night and, um, and obviously there's troubles falling asleep after, after matches, especially if you're a professional football player playing in front of lots of people. Um, but then you also just have the realities of being an athlete. And of course, it can be stress. And, and you know, that can be, you know, like for everyone, general public as well. Um, but for elite athletes, you know, there might be stress around selections, um, around sponsorship, just having busy days, all those kinds of things, plus all the other stresses that normal people face. Um, there's, you know, we find caffeine can be an issue with a lot of athletes. You know, you want to have that little hit before your afternoon training session and that can have, um, that can have longer term effects. And then I think obviously things like social media, um, video games, you know, gaming athletes are often competitive. So they like to game and they like to win. Uh, and so that can get pretty intense. So I think there's kinds of lots of things, some things around behaviors, some things around things that we do, like, early morning training sessions, travel at crazy times of the day. So, um, but generally there's lots of, you know, being an athlete's kind of like the perfect storm for things to go wrong when it comes to sleep. Did you, do you think they've generally, athletes have had worse sleep than the general public Absolutely. traditionally? Yeah, so some of the literature suggests ah. that, um, actually shows when you compare to like normal people, normal people inverted mm. commas like us, like me, um, that athletes actually sleep a little bit poorer. So slightly shorter durations and slightly shorter quality, which we didn't actually expect to see. You'd think in a tight athletes, yeah. surely they'd just hop into bed and crash. But um, yes, if they're sore, if they're injured, if they're stressed, you know, all these things that can, can kind of contribute. And is this That's a relatively c- recent phenomenon? I mean, how, how far back have things like sleep been tracked in in the athletes or is it you know is this something that you would you know correlate with like like we say with with social media with additional distractions or has this always been an issue yeah it's a really good question we probably started doing some of the first um you know really practical kind of monitoring in athletes and that was i guess maybe 12 13 years ago um so that was the first that we sort of started to understand sleep i think that the social media, phone use, um, you know, smartphone use, that's that's made things worse um, as a general rule, I would suggest. Um, but we don't really have data that goes beyond, you know, sort of 10 years ago. So it's, it's a little bit harder to tell. But when you think of, you know, all the additional, um, you know, really top level athletes, all the additional things that they have in their life around the social media, around, you know, TV coverage and all those kinds of things and sponsorship, it's gone mm. to a whole other level. So it wouldn't surprise me if um, the demands that are placed on athletes today are, you know, a lot um, greater and therefore um, have a, a bigger um, uh, detrimental effect on sleep. And, and I think the other thing that I and a lot of other people sort of forget is, you know, success and failure is so public in athletes. Um, and so, you know, we all just think, oh, yeah, what a cruisy, easy life these athletes have got that at work. They just train, you know, and it's like, yeah, well, hang on, not many people have a job where, you know, if you lose, you do that in front of the world um, and people can watch it on replay. And, you know, so it's I think the, the more public that sport becomes and the more interaction we have and the easier it is to access, then I certainly can see the, the stress of, of being an athlete would be increased. Then, and was there any particular reason why why you started to track sleep at that time was there was it a case of there is a general awareness around looking at uh, sort of multiple factors in in how athletes perform or was there 
a, a piece of research or something else that kind of that, that, that linked and made this more relevant as something that needed to be tracked? What was the kind of the, the mm. triggers or the, or the environment under which this started to be monitored? Yeah, it was really interesting because um, it was a bit of one of those twists of fate. Um, when I was working at the Institute of Sport, the um, the head of physiology at the time, uh, a guy called Professor Chris Gore, he'd gone to a university in Adelaide and he went back for like a reunion. And he'd been up with this guy who was also in his class from you know, 20 years ago, a guy called Professor Drew Dawson, who's like the doyen of sleep in Australia. Like he's just the, the guru. <laughs> and they just started chatting. And then that's kind of actually how it happened. We knew it was important. We had no sleep expertise. We had no technology to monitor it. So we linked with this university because, you know, people like sports. So they're like, oh, cool. We can, you know, we can connect with you guys. And, and that was really the start of it. We kind of knew it was important, but we didn't really know where to go to start because there weren't the wearables out there that there are now there mm. was like sleep monitoring devices like research grade um accelerometers that were you know and we still use some of some of them t today but we didn't have easy access to, to devices we didn't know what to do with the data when we got it so it was really one of those things that if those two hadn't have connected I don't know where we would where we would have been from a sleep perspective, but we knew it was important. We were hearing athletes talk about it. Um, it was just one of those things that brought you know the two groups together. Is it, is when, it just, when it comes to these kind of things, it's something that coaches and 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 people who are responsible for athlete performance they kind of just stumble on like let's <laughs> do conversations rather than going oh we've got this specific problem let's go out and seek to seek to solve it is that is that kind of you know as to when when they focus on various things it just happens to be mm. but who is in front of them or who they have connections with at the time how it, it, yeah. It, yeah. What is the what is the kind of the the thinking behind the the way in which they they seek out help with performance? Mm. Yeah. So I think sometimes it's when the wheels fall off. So if right. an athlete is not performing training as they should, can't quite work out what might be going on. Um, maybe they're getting injured a lot or sick a lot, and so then they might start to dig in a little bit and find out what's going on. And I think one of the interesting things about sleep is that um, unless you're measuring it, you have no idea what an athlete's doing. So, um, you know, when you know we can measure skin folds to see if you know people's body composition changes. You often you eat with people. You know, coaches will eat with their athletes. They monitor them when they're training. If they see them when they're training. But the sleep's the sort of this thing that no one really um, could get a good hold of in terms of what were the athletes doing. And you know, sometimes it was like, oh, we'd see an athlete tweet at like three o'clock in the morning, and we're like, well, that's probably a bit of a sign that you're actually awake. But we didn't really know. And so, um, and. Then and as sort of sleep got popular in other areas, so like in well-being and in general health, you know, we know how it's linked to cardiovascular health and diabetes and metabolism and all this stuff. So sleep kind of got interesting to everyone else. Um, and then um, the coaches kind of started to read about things and understand that, okay, sleep might be important. So it just kind of gets flagged that way. But then often it'll be an athlete will say, oh, I've just, I'm really stressed or, you know, death in the family, relationship breakdown, something like that. They stop sleeping, mm. you know, the wheels fall off and then they go, oh, we might need some help in this, in this area. And, and when that happens, what, what do you then take the athletes through to try and help them? 
Yeah. So from a sleep perspective, there's a couple of ways that we can that we can do it. So um, if you've got or they've got a wearable or, or we can give them some sort of activity monitor, like research grade device, put, probably put them on, um, get the athlete to wear them um, for maybe seven to 14 days. Always like to get a weekend in there because that's where stuff kind of goes wrong. Um, maybe fill out a sleep diary with it and then we get the feed, we get the information and then I would sit down with the athlete and say, okay, this is what you're doing good. Um, this is what sort of things that you can improve. We don't have access to those kinds of things. It might just be simple screening questionnaires, conversations, you know, but it, but it really is. And that's one of the, the things that I challenges I have with wearables is that they most of them don't actually tell you what to do. You need to sit down with someone to work it out. So they can be good from an education perspective, but it's where you get to talk to someone. That's where the interesting stuff happens. That's where they say, oh, you know, I get home after training and because I live in a shared house, I go straight into my bedroom and I spend time reading or doing or working on my computer or whatever. Everything's in the bedroom. Um, and then, you know, you can see, okay, well, that's where some of these issues might be arising from. But unless you sit down and talk to them, you don't know where they are. You don't know, you know, you see that they're not asleep, but you don't know what they're doing. Or you see that they're sleeping and you don't know where they are. So um, I think it's the conversation um, that you have with them. That's where the interesting stuff comes out. Because with runners, we've, I've always been told like that they'll typically sleep during the day. So you, you might go out and you have a run in the morning. They then have a a lunch sleep, an afternoon sleep, and then a secondary run after that. Is that quite unique in sport? Um, I wouldn't say so. I think napping is pretty common, um, and it's particularly common for um, athletes who do the two sessions a day. It's common for athletes who um, have big volumes of training. Um, it's common for athletes who might have an early start. So if you're a runner and you want to get out early before it gets too warm or you want to do lots of Ks, so you've got to start early um, in the morning, that can, um, that can also have an effect. And if you want to just feel good for the second session, sometimes a quick nap is a, a really good way of doing that. So if you, I often say, um, you know, athletes are always asking about how they can hack their day and hack their sleep and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, look, if you, the only way to get over being sleep deprived is to sleep. Like it's the only thing. You can trick your body with caffeine for a short period of time, but you've got to sleep. And if you sleep deprived, a nap is essentially the best way um, to get over it um, apart from another full night's sleep. And so do you want, do you want to talk us through the basics then? Because we, we hear about kind of deep sleep and you know, mm -hmm. REM and all those things. What, if you were to, to categorise the different types of sleep and actually give us a, an overview of what mm -hmm. we should be expecting or what we should, like what would be the perfect amount for us as athletes? <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good question. I wish I had a really good answer. Um, one, the first thing that's a challenge I think, is well, the other thing to the other thing to paying attention there is the way that David says as athletes because everyone thinks they're an athlete now. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if that makes well the fact that people yeah. people are training in different ways as well. Whether that's had an impact. Yeah. Look, I think so. I think you know everyone's. You know, people are, you know, exercise is popular. You know, people are, you know, getting out there and, you know, training more and more and, um, and, you know, doing, you know, doing more and more exercise. So I think, you know, that, that does become, and we can monitor, you know, I've got 
I'm currently trialing three different wearables, right? So I feel like the, the loser that's, you know, at, at the gym with all these different devices. <laughs> on but, um, <laughs> what, what are the different ones out of interest? Yeah, um, I'm try. I'm using Aura Ring. Um, just yeah, will you notice that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was doing a presentation the other day, and one of the questions in the chat was, "Are you wearing an Aura Ring?" I'm like, "Yes." Um, trialing, uh, obviously uh, using the Apple Watch. We're potentially using that for other things other than sleep, and a new device called a BioStrap that we're potentially going to do some validation work on um, as well. So, yeah, I'm, is I mean, Aura I wear... just a ring that will monitor. Yeah, I've got to be careful how I do this. Last time I was sort of, oh, yeah. you know, doing the middle. <laughs> like, it's quite good. chunky. Yeah, look, it's um, I'm I am as a scientist the world's biggest skeptic, um, but I do find <laughs> um, I do find the ring really gives you some really interesting information. Um, I find it highly accurate. Um, it. Um, I guess some people don't like wearing rings for people in the gym, you know, gripping, mm. you know, then maybe, you know, I, I have no affiliation with any of these. So I, I sort of feel like I can talk a little bit about them, but um, I do like the aura ring. I like a lot more than I thought I would. And um, the new version's going to have a lot more temperature sensors in it. And that's what we're interested in from a, a female athlete perspective and sleep across the menstrual cycle and kind of understanding those things. So um, the aura ring for us is just, I guess, practical and, and easy, um, easy to use. So, and does that, do you have to recharge it or does it somehow yeah. magically do a movement okay? No, yeah, you recharge probably about every five to seven days, which is surprisingly good in comparison to a lot of a lot of other devices. So, um, and there is some validation work that's been done on it. So I feel relatively, it's probably the sort of thing that a lot of these wearables now, if you were doing research, you would never be able to publish them because people were like, oh, we don't know what's in those and we don't know what the algorithms are. But now it's sort of getting to the point where we know more and more about these mm. devices and you can kind of put them on Elite Athlete. They like them. We can publish the data so it becomes a nice, you know, happy medium. Um, oh, interesting. So yeah, going back then to what would you say, uh, what, was, what are the different stages of sleep and are yeah, the sorry, perceptions <laughs> true and, and what would be the um so it's because we keep on interrupting yeah. you but um that's yeah, what no, we no, do no, best no. really but uh <laughs> <laughs> oh, good um yeah so one of the big challenges is that everybody's sleep need is different um we are now starting to see the genetic um that there's a strong genetic component to sleep so sometimes i'll be talking to an athlete and they'll say only get six hours and it'll be like their mum or dad does the same thing or, you know, you can often see that it's, it's, there's a hereditary component to it. So it becomes hard because some people might be super, uh, have a really high quality sleep. So their depth of, depth of sleep is great. Mm. And so they might need a shorter duration. And there might be others who their quality is not great. They toss and turn a fair bit. They're light sleepers. So they may need a, a greater duration. And so it's really hard to give some of these generic sort of guidelines for athletes because everyone's so different. But I do get people to think about a couple of things. I, I kind of get them to think about how they feel when they wake up in the morning. Um, so most people, you know, a lot of people don't jump out of bed feeling fantastic. But if you still feel pretty bad after an hour and, you know, you've had a coffee or two, you know, maybe you haven't had a great night's sleep, like you should really mm. feel pretty good after an hour. Mm. If you can't get through the day, like you, you know, it comes to three or four o'clock in the afternoon and you're just, you know, you're, you're in the passenger seat of a car and you fall asleep or, you know, athletes fall asleep on massage tables or in buses and stuff like that. And that might be a sign that you haven't had enough. So I think it's always good to try to look back and see 
how what the response is to your sleep and if you can get through the day you feel pretty good you probably slept all right if you and i think most people know what it's like to have really short sleep and then try to get through the day it's, it's not fun so i get people to try and think of what's normal for them and when they feel good like you know, a lot of people i mean i'm seven hours i know that if i get less than seven i don't feel amazing um and so but other people it's 10 other people at six i get people to just think about what's normal and what makes them feel good from a sleep perspective and should we because you hear about in Japan in particular, but sleep booths and the idea that mm-hmm. afternoon naps are beneficial for productivity. Like, is that something, if we could, we should be slipping mm. in our day? Yeah, I would say yes on the whole, because the majority of people are sleep deprived. Um, but the time when uh, napping is not good is actually if you're not sleep deprived. So some people sleep because they're bored or, you know, they're on holidays, they've got nothing else to do or they just just feels good, it feels nice to have a little nap. Um, And if you don't actually need that and maybe you nap too late in the day or for too long, it can really mess up your nighttime sleep. I'm sure most people have experienced that before. You get home from work, you fall asleep on the couch and then you go, wow, it's midnight (laughs) and I just can't sleep. So that's when a nap naps bad because we know consistency of sleep is really important. So usual bedtimes, usual wake times. So I would work with some swimmers who would obviously get up ridiculously early. They'd do a swim session, a gym session, and they'd be home by maybe 11 in the morning and they'd have a nap at like 11. Um, But that was perfect because then they had a really long amount of time before they went to bed at night to build up some more of that what we call sleep pressure. So they they get sleepy. Um, Whereas if you get home from a training session at five in the afternoon and you have a nap and you wake up at six and you want to go to bed at 10, you've only got like four hours of the day to get sleepy and you probably won't be. So depending on how sleep deprived you are. So I would say on the whole, naps are good because most of us are sleep deprived. Most of us can be more efficient, more productive, train better in the afternoon, feel better, whatever it might be. It's just being a bit careful. If you don't actually need it, you can actually mess yourself up more. And is it true that because this, this idea that if you are sort of sleep deprived say during the week you can't actually catch up on it at the weekend mm. like mm. It, how, i mean how does that work and and, and what, what, does the you yeah. know does it, it obviously doesn't work cumulatively it works on a day-by-day <laughs> basis just if you could explain that just so that i it, it makes sense as to why that doesn't work if it doesn't work yeah it's actually a little bit controversial this idea of this you know social jet lag where you know we're sleep deprived during the week and then we mess up our habits on the weekend. What we do know is the more consistent you can be with bed and wake times across your seven nights of the week, the better. So go to bed at one time, wake up at the, at the, another time and keep that as often as possible, exactly the same. That's how we know you get good sleep. And there's even one study that says if you're a short sleeper and you only get, you get less hours than you need, as long as you are consistent, it's probably not that bad. Um, and so this idea of being consistent come, becomes really important. And so if you're being, um, you know, getting a certain amount of sleep during the week and then on the weekend it's completely different, you really throw out that consistency. And it's not like being jet lagged or a shift worker, but, it, it, you know, if you're really different, it kind of can be, which is a bit of a mess for your consistency. Um, so consistency seems to be 
the thing to prioritize and, and to focus on. Um, but if you are really sleep deprived during the week, as I said, the only way to catch up is to sleep. Uh, so for some people, they will actually need more sleep on the weekend to feel good and prep them for um, for during the week. But my approach would be to try to find ways of getting more sleep during the week rather than having, you know, fat feast and famine where you've got no mm. sleep during the week and then massive amounts on the weekend because the body likes to know, it likes routine. The best thing that you can do is eat, sleep and train at consistent times. The body just This loves is not sleep. rave repeat. Sorry? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, yes. Okay. No, right, I've been, I've been taught completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is there, and is there, the other thing that was associ is associated with that that has been mentioned before is the fact that it, by, by um, having a lack of sleep over long periods of time and then trying to catch up with it, that actually, that actually can it create long-term, I mean, can generally this create long-term damage or long-term issues if 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 you are regularly going without the sort of the requisite amount of sleep or will your body just naturally get to a point where it will kind of shut down and get the sleep it needs like it, it does your can your body or eventually will it do something to to force itself to to recover mm. it does happen to a lot of people because it is very unhealthy from a psychological and physiological perspective to have long long-term short sleep uh, we know now linked to you know um, heart disease um, diabetes there's lots of different things you know metabolism mental health mood lots of different negative effects of consistent short sleep now some people sort of feel like they can do that and and i mean i my example and i don't know whether five or six weeks you'd consider that long term but um the few times that i've worked at an olympics and been in the village and we usually work five to six weeks it's usually no days off it's usually not much sleep you can kind of do it you know there's an end in sight you feel ordinary but you get through it and then comes the crash when you get home. Um, when you get home, it's like, oh my God, you could like, I could like sleep for a month. Um, but because you know there's an end in sight, you can kind of do it. Um, I think often what happens to some people is that if they go through just short, less sleep than they need for a fairly long period of time, they might have some negative health effects and then potentially comes the crash. Um, your ability to be resilient, to cope with life, um, as I said, mental health and sleep are so closely linked. Um, so there usually comes a point where body and brain had enough. And it's like when you, um, I'm sure we've all done this, you, you work 100 hours to get finished so you can have a break at Christmas, right? And then as soon as you get close to stopping, you just, you, you, you fall apart or you get sick. And that's, getting sick is often the body's way of saying, you need to stop. So, you know, when you're sick, you feel tired and you feel tired, so you sleep and your sleep really helps your recovery. So um, I think this idea of you can push through sleep and we can, you know, you hear people saying they're just, you know, oh, I've been a short sleeper my whole life and maybe they are and maybe they're okay with that, but then maybe there'll be a point where things fall apart. And if you're an athlete, it might be an injury. It might be long-term illness. Yeah, who knows what it is. And, and for people who are struggling then, because I imagine a lot of, well, the, the people I know who do struggle with sleep, it, it almost, the struggle with sleep becomes the stress in itself and yeah. the the fear of not being able to sleep then stops you. it becomes a, a vicious yeah. circle but how um, would you what, what would you say for people who are struggling with sleep like what are the we know the things like phones away you know after mm -hmm, 10 mm -hmm. and um yeah but 
what what would you say that are other things that people can put what structures to help them yeah. actually break that cycle yeah i would say there's usually sort of two um discrete well sometimes they happen together but usually it's one of two things it's other behaviors are bad and it's caffeine and it's phones in bed or it's you know, people have kids and they're just distracted. They're, they're up all night, um, so or their routine's really bad. And so it's surprising when people just lock in to bed and wake times consistently how much that can help. And so I think there's things about looking at what behaviours people are doing. Um, and yeah, phones are going to be one of them. But ultimately, what phones do is they just shorten your sleep. You just get less actual amount of sleep. So I, whenever I look at athlete sleep reports. There's usually the most common thing is you need to go to bed earlier and you need to be asleep and awake at more consistent times. It's incredibly common. And it's incredible how easily those fixes tend to work. Go to bed a little bit earlier and a little bit more consistently and it's usually enough. Um, because the thing that we usually have control over is our bedtime. The things that we don't, we usually have less control over our wake time because usually we have to be to work or we have to be at training or we've got things we need to do. Um, so the thing that we can control is usually going to bed. Um, but that's often when we go, oh, you know, I'll just stay up and watch something else on Netflix or whatever it is. So that's one camp. The other is the stress. Um, the people that are genuinely stressed and anxious, um, we know that those, that combination, stress and anxiety, sleep, don't go well together. And um, it can be just a matter of, you know, very acute, you know, I remember once working with an athlete who was getting such bad sleep and talking to him, it was because he was, he was actually getting married soon, right? And it wasn't that he didn't want to get married. He just had a lot on. He was just really busy. And he was, I was like, do you not, do you not want to marry your wife? Like, what's going on? He's like, no, 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 I'm all for it. It's just like, I'm like, why are you so stressed about this? It's last single days. I hear you. I hear you. He was, he was packing it in. <laughs> he was, he was he living was life. having cold feet. What he told me, though, was that he's just really busy. And he's, he's in, it's in the season and he was, you know, elite footballer and he was, but he was also, you know, having all these other things on. And he probably wasn't the most organised person. So he'd go to bed and that's your opportunity to think and you go, oh, okay, I've got to do this tomorrow. There's this, there's that. And he just started keeping a really organized diary and it fixed him totally fine because he went to bed knowing that he's got a plan. This is all going to work. I don't have to keep thinking about things that um, I'm, I'm worried about. I'm, I'm going to forget. So there can be little acute things like that. Um, it might be, you know, a couple of nights a week or, you know, for some athletes who are waiting for selection, there can be certain nights where they don't sleep prior to, the, you know, finding out if they get picked for a team or the night before a race or whatever it is. So there can be acute things like that where they're just the people are a little bit stressed and a little bit anxious. But then there's also in that same camp people that have really serious stress and anxiety issues that probably need to get some help. Um, and um, it was interesting when we did our very first lot of sleep monitoring. So the very first paper we did was on our athletes preparing for Beijing, they were swimmers. And um, we, we looked and I was like, oh, there's two out of this team that are really bad sleepers. And the psychologist, she said to me, don't tell me, I'll be able to tell you exactly who those two are. And she named the two and she got them exactly right. She said, oh, they're just highly, highly anxious. Um, and so that was, it was a bit of an insight then into, okay, yeah, this is, this is really real. And so I'm um, getting some help for, and it might just be finding meditation, relaxation, breathing, whatever it is that works for you. That can be one step. The next step out to that might be you need to get some help from a professional to manage, you know, your, your levels of stress and anxiety. 
and and how does okay Jenny? I was to say one one thing. I don't know whether this is a this is a myth or not, but are like patterns of sleep are they affected like um, from sort of childhood? Like if you were you didn't sleep a lot in childhood or you were up late and things like that can that have an impact in terms of like you know obviously has it in terms of habits but does that have an impact mm. in terms of you know getting your body used to 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 going to bed at certain times i'm i'm not mm. i'm t completely thinking about my own personal experience as a, <laughs> as a, as a child and a teenager yeah. and being a total insomniac watching yeah. like stuff all the way through to like four in the morning and I, I'm terrible at sleeping now and I, yeah. I just wonder is there is there is there a link yeah I haven't seen any signs not to say that it's not out there but it wouldn't surprise me I think a couple of things probably happen that you you do set up patterns that become normal so you know some people I look at their sleep and they think they're fine and I'm like no, that's just become normal. Your abnormality has just become normal for you and you don't know what it like, feels like to sleep normally. I think setting up good patterns early is really important and that's why they talk about, you know, people with kids to have, you know, bed and wake times consistent for the kids, you know, move through to adulthood. It's exactly the same thing. Um, but there is some really... Uh, and, you know, this is taking it a whole other other level, but there's a lot of really good research around um, childhood trauma and how that affects sleep in the long term. Um, so there's can definitely be some connections there between poor sleep um, that, that continue through. But I think some of the habits and patterns that we have and what your parents tell you, like I still remember being told you're in bed by 8.30. And sometimes I look at my phone and I'm like, oh, it's 8.30. Like, I still remember that from like 30 years ago, which is mad. <laughs> um, but I do think that, yeah, sometimes there's there's patterns and things that you set up that become, become yeah. normal. It's really funny because, like, my parents didn't have any limits, like, in terms of, like, I've never, you know, and I had, and, I, and from a very young age, I had a TV in my yeah. room as well, like, yeah. a really yeah, young wow. age, like, you know, sort yeah. of like seven or eight. And so, and so I watched TV really, really late. And so but the, mm. the, the, the thing I wanted to ask about related to that was the fact that it doesn't matter then in terms of how, you know, how bad your sleep may have been in the past, that actually it's entirely possible to train yourself into good sleep, regardless yeah. of, 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 of what happened. Those patterns aren't, aren't set on any kind of long-term basis. You're not like locked into bad sleep, you know, no. at any point in your life. No, the only two caveats to that are if you actually have an underlying medical sleep disorder, uh, which right. you know is rare. Uh, I mean, well, not not rare, rare, but it's it's not the most common thing um, that you find. Um, and then the second thing is your chronotype. So if you're a night owl um, or a lark, you know, if you're if you're someone who is a, a bit, you know, you're biologically more like someone who likes to go to bed late and wake late. Oh, so that does exist. As oh, a... that is a thing. Oh, okay. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's there's questionnaires that you can do to determine your chronotype. Um, and if you're a night owl, you're usually someone who works more efficiently in the afternoon. I'm definitely more of a morning person. I work way better in the morning. Um, and um, yeah, people's um, desire, whether they're a night person or a morning person, is very real, probably genetic as well, uh, and therefore probably um, harder to change, which makes it hard when we're in a certain societies where mm. you know, if you're a runner and, and you want to run yeah. with a group. But, you know, we found, though, in um, we've looked at the chronotype of elite athletes and we see very few night owls 
they're mostly early morning or neutral people. We don't see many people that you know have this desire to go to bed at midnight and wake up at ten in the morning. Um, so you can imagine, you you think, know, if you're a swimmer, you couldn't live like that. You'd, you'd get selected out yeah. because you couldn't live but like that. But do you think? Do you yeah. think because of the way that swimming, like things like that, happen, that actually we we could be missing out on a whole swathe of athletes who are <laughs> night owls, but they just don't fit into the norms of the of, norms of, of, of kind of training schedules. Yeah, it's it's very possible. So if you think what happens in adolescence is you kind of your body clock shifts back, so you become more like a night owl. Um, and so we all think they're just super lazy and they won't wake up in the morning, but no, their body clock is wired to to be like that. And so you wonder why we lose, you know, high school athletes because we train them so early, they don't mm. get any better, they don't adapt because they're not sleeping, they're not getting the recovery they need. They don't feel like they're getting anywhere and they're hating life because they've got to go to school and they're sleeping through school and they're so sleep deprived. Um, it's no wonder we lose them at that kind of high school age because they're superstars and then they get to high school and they're duds because they're, maybe they're more like a night owl or maybe they're, mm. um, they're more their they're adolescence and their, their body clock shifted. So if we could be as a society a little more flexible with our start training times, like when we actually expect athletes to turn up to training in the morning, um, we may, you know, find a whole other group of people that yeah were previously untapped but the challenge is is when people have to go to school mm. and when you've got limited access to to facilities as athletes that can be a challenge and, and do we need more sleep about chronotypes to say coaches and 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 you and you're saying this kind of stuff about you know that actually a 5am start may not be right for everyone <laughs> What, what's their kind of like response to that? What is that? It depends. It depends. I've worked with um, teams of, you know, elite teams where it's not a problem to push training back later. Um, and they see the benefits and they're like, right, we're not going to turn up at the club till 11. And that's no problem and everything works fine. Now, yeah. that can work particularly well. Like it doesn't work that well in Australia, especially when it's hot in summer. You can't start training that late. Like you're going to cook people. Um, so that's mm. not a great idea. But in some countries, later starts, the sun's not up early. It just works brilliantly. Um, then we have sort of this other, and it's happened to me working with swim coaches, where if they've got to coach athletes, elite athletes, but also in that same squad are athletes that go to go to school, you've got to start them early. And they start everyone at the same time. Instead of doing two sessions and saying, school kids, we, we need to do you here, elite athletes, you can sleep in a bit later, we're going to train you here, they just want to do the, the one session. Um, and that's sometimes part, you know, part of the problem. Um, you know, having elite athletes and non-elite athletes train together have some, has some benefits, but often it's, it's just this cultural thing. And, and they believe that the biggest distance between training session, like the longer you have between the training session during the day, the better, so you can recover. So 6 a.m. in the pool mm. and then 4 p.m. in the pool for the next session, you've got all day to recover, but they forget that the best recovery that you have is at night. Um, and they're shortening that to prioritise the length of time during the day, which to me just doesn't make sense. But um, you have to also educate the athletes because if they don't have to get up as early, you can guarantee they're going to stay up late and not use uh, it as an opportunity to get more sleep. Yeah. They'll use it as a time to get on, get you know, watch some more Netflix. And and do we need more sleep the more we exercise? Because there's so many listeners who will do back to back long runs over weekends to yeah. train for ultras. 
and will do they do you need to increase the amount of sleep you have to match that and also does should it widen on the days that you exercise more hmm. yeah that's a very good question and to be honest we don't 100% know the answer. We believe that yes, athletes probably need more sleep than the general population because of the requirement for recovery. So if you think about the idea of sleep is to recover from the day that you've had, you know, if the day that you've had includes, you know, a lot of running as well as, you know, um, plus your work day for a lot of people, um, then they'll actually, I believe, need more sleep and they'll probably need more of the deep sleep to help them physically recover. Um, so yes, I, I think that's the case. But in terms of, I think you, what you might be getting at, do we periodize sleep? Like, you know, we periodize recovery, mm. we periodize nutrition. I don't think that's something that I would entertain. And part of the reason for that is this idea about being consistent and um, mixing up, you know, one night having a lot longer sleep than another um, is probably not um, not a great idea when really most people are sleep deprived anyway. So you should we should just be trying to get more rather than having some days where you get more and some days that you get less. Ideally, we're all getting probably most people could probably get an extra half an hour to an hour a night at least. And um, and, and something that we, we we were talking with Robbie about in particular is now particularly in running we're moving towards sports. Uh, races where you're you're against the clock for day after day or you're doing something like a backyard challenge where mm -hmm. you you will not be able to get more than five minutes sleep at any any particular period or, or adventure racing which is five to ten days non-stop what do we know about the best approaches for sleep mm. um during periods like that and and things like one minute micro sleeps, 20 minute sleeps, hour sleeps. Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, and there's been different studies that have looked, you know, the race across America, I know that's cycling race, but, you know, when to sleep and how long to ride for and all these kinds of things. And there seems to be no hard and fast rule. The only thing that seems to be very clear from the literature is don't start sleep deprived bank your sleep as much as you can so that you're going into these races with, you know, five or six or you know seven nights beforehand with as much sleep as you can possibly get. Because it seems like if you've got a really good solid base um, and then you go in and you, your sleep drops off a little bit, it's probably not the end of the world. But if you're coming in with this low base already and then your sleep mm. gets messed up over four or five days or however long it is, then you can be in real trouble. Um, and it does completely depend on, you know, the tactics of the race as to when you might sleep during longer sleeps, shorter sleeps. Um, each race is so different that it's hard to give guidelines. The only thing we can really say, um, one is probably to test it out a little bit um, and to know what works for you, but also to just don't go in sleep deprived if you possibly can. And that's where travel becomes a real thing. So if people are flying in, like to especially long haul in their, in their traveling, then all of a sudden you can start quite sleep deprived. And so not flying in if you don't have to too close to the event, if you are flying is good, like get in, get into the new time zone or recover from your flight. Um, adequately, so you're not starting in a in a bad place. And, and is it worth say you are going somewhere that is say we were racing in the Middle East, which is three hours ahead? Is it yeah. worth adjusting your 
sleep ahead of time so that you're waking up at a similar time to what you wake up there. You, you start waking up at 4.30 in the morning rather than 7.30 or... Yeah. Um, in theory, that is the best way. There's only That's kind of the only way that's ever described to not have jet lag is to fix yourself before you go because there's really no other way. However, in reality, it's just really hard to do. So it depends mm -hmm. on which direction you're traveling, how many time zones you're shifting. Um, there's some times where you might want to, you know, you might have to do three or four hour shifts, but that doesn't work for your actual life or your training or when you want to try, the, you know, your access to mm. facilities or the daylight hours. And usually what we see with people who have tried that is they just get on the plane knackered. They're just tired before they even leave because their <laughs> sleep schedule's been messed up so much um, mm. that they hop on the plane and they're a bit stuffed before they even, um, even depart. So my advice would be to get there a little bit earlier get into the new time zone as quickly as possible, use light at the right times and there's ways to calculate that to do it properly, but just get in sync into the new place as quickly as you can rather than potentially starting and messing it up before you even even leave. And I've heard of jet lag, food potentially is something else that the body has a rhythm for, so knowing it's breakfast, yes. lunch, whatever your rhythm is, is that something we should, can we use that to slightly hack a quicker? Yep jet lag yes. and a shorter jet lag. Yes, 100%. Eat, sleep and exercise and get light in the new time zone, um, which can be a bit of a challenge. I know like you fly to somewhere new and it's, you just don't feel like eating breakfast. Like, you don't, you know, mm. you're in dinner time and, you know, especially in Australia, like usually when we fly somewhere, the whole world's spun around completely. Mm. So it's like 12 hours difference or something hideous. Um, and so you just don't feel like, because um, we know your gastrointestinal system, everything is is still on the old time zone. Mm. Um, and But yes, eating, um, and then we always recommend that um, for when our teams are traveling is to obviously be prepared in advance with the right food because sometimes you go places and you don't like anything that they eat because mm. <laughs> their cult, you know, the typical foods are different. Um, so maybe bringing your own food if you may need, but eating on those times um, and exercising at fairly normal times is really important. And, and is it important to replicate the size of the meal as well, or is just having a, a light dinner sufficient, mm. or do you, do you need to go all out for your, your pasta bake mm. or whatever you're, you're typically used to? Yeah, I probably would just eat what you think you can tolerate. Um, try to eat it at the right times um, but we do know that going to bed too full or too hungry is is um, you know not great so um, eat what you typically eat at that time for for dinner but maybe you know if you're not that hungry I wouldn't be you know forcing yourself to eat but sometimes I know this happens to me sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night hungry so you're sleeping lighter anyway because it's actually for you it's the middle of the day so you shouldn't be sleeping um, so you're having light sleep we still have, I mean, most people know they, you know, I always, a lot of people, I do it too, wake up a lot at night to go to the bathroom because you have a diurnal, you know, rhythm to, you know, to when mm. you go to the bathroom. So, you know, it's like, oh, God, I've woken up like four times to pee. It's like, oh, God. Um, and so it gets really, you know, you get really frustrated and then you wake up and you're hungry because you didn't have a big dinner. And then you think, oh, God, I've got to eat now. So I'm starving. So trying to just keep it as normal as you can. I always now just go, look, I know the first couple of days I'm going to feel ordinary. Things aren't going to be normal. 
I'll drink coffee during the morning. I'll get through the best I can. And at some point I'm going to feel good. I just, I don't get as, as not obsessed with it, but I don't get as try to do every tiny little thing because I know I'm just going to feel bad and I'm just going to deal with it for a little while. I'm not going to do things that are going to make it worse. Um, mm. but, and I'll do little like habits that I think have worked for me over the years that you will work out. But, um, overall, I, I try to be a little bit more flexible with my approach to it and just go, yeah, I'm not going to feel perfect. No one's going to feel perfect after long haul travel. I've always just been told if you're, if you, if you keep on nodding off, just hold your breath for as long as you can. And eventually <laughs> you're going to wake up I'm quite sure. quickly because it's, it's quite nice that see if you're driving or, cause it's quite fun to do as well. Um, Long as, maybe not on the on the bus, but I have and, not um, tried that. And and in because the most likely race scenarios that our listeners will be in will probably be a twenty four hour race or a hundred miler, maybe something a bit longer, um, or a backyard scenario where they're they're getting ten minutes rest every hour for mm-hmm. as many days. I mean, Harvey, he was just interviewed, did three days straight I think um when Camille set the the 24-hour record she actually slept twice I think that one of the times um for like a minute or two like are they mm-hmm. is, is there a substantial difference in the sleep of a minute or two and the sleep of 20 minutes in, in terms mm. of the effect of it but also the nature of that sleep Mm, that's such a yeah, another good question. We and an example of this is we did a study when I was at the Institute of Sport. We had our best cyclists that we could get hold of come in. We simulated a Tour de France. We measure and we measured their sleep every night. We had polysomnography. We had every gadget known to them. We wanted to track their sleep over the time. Um, we did this horrible test. It's called a multiple sleep latency test, where you put them in bed during the day, and as soon as they get into deep sleep, you wake them up. It's shocking, feels hideous, and you repeat that. <laughs> now, the sleep lab people who got the data, who'd never monitored elite athletes before, thought something had gone wrong because these guys were getting into deep sleep during the day in minutes. And they're like, that's not what we learn in textbooks. That can't be real, but it was very real. So what had happened was these guys were so tired that they just they almost skipped the mm. lighter stages of sleep and went straight into deep sleep. So I mm. imagine, having never done a 24-hour race, I never will, um, that um, the, you know, the desire to – the ability for the body to go, I need to recover, I'm going to drop yeah. you straight into deep sleep quickly um, and, and being that fatigued and having that much requirement for sleep that it wouldn't surprise me if a couple of minutes, um, you know, athletes are getting into pretty deep sleep. Um, it's always – of stating the very obvious is you know it's a trade-off between you know the more you sleep the less you're running right so you you're going to you're going to lose time by sleeping but for everyone it's going to be different as to you know you don't want to spend a whole lot of time going right i'm going to sleep for 20 minutes and you're lying there for 10 then you've just completely wasted half of your your time there so you want to probably sleep when you know you're going to sleep like when you're really sleepy when you go i know that if i stop now i'm going to nap um, and mm. probably shorter naps in that instance are probably going to be best because they will probably get into into a pretty deep sleep pretty easy. Um, yeah. And then you're maximising your time to actually be running. And and do we is there any way to have measured what the quality of sleep is for periods like if say you had a a one to twenty minute or one to five minute bell curve of 
how much of the uh, I can't remember the blockers that, that make you feel tired and um, in your head and various things. Is it the case that if you're really deprived, two minutes is better than one minute, double, or that you get to, like the first minute's the best, the second minute's never not quite as good, the third minute's not quite as good. But how does mm. how where does what does that graph look like for people who are trying mm. to figure out what might fit in best for their strategy? Yeah. So usually we would the way that sleep would work is you'd start out awake, then you go into stage one sleep, which is light sleep. You go into two, stage two sleep, which is a little bit deeper, but then the good stuff is you really get that stage three sleep. That's where we think you get the most physical recovery. And a lot of athletes get really caught up on, oh, I didn't get any slow wave sleep or I need more slow wave sleep. But the next stage is REM sleep. And we know that REM is particularly important for the brain. Uh, and also potentially now we always thought a lot of hormones were released in slow wave sleep. And now it's like mm, maybe they might actually be released just as much in REM sleep or more in REM sleep. So we want to get we want to get as much sort of stage two, three and REM sleep as possible. Now, the more sleep deprived you are, the quicker you're going to you're going to miss those lighter stages of sleep and go into the deep ones. Um, and so, yeah, it, but the, the challenge is that everyone everyone is really different and and most of the wearables really struggle to pick up naps, really struggle. So they struggle to get mm. um, staging of sleep. Most of them don't. Mm. If they do, they don't really get it very accurate. Um, and then add on top of that that it's almost impossible to pick up naps really accurately. So I would say in that instance, you just have to go by feel what, you know, whether the athlete feels like they got into some decent sleep, probably practicing things um, as often as possible, trying different strategies and different events and coming up with what actually sort of works for them. And, um, and yeah, are there any other um, things that aren't intuitive or any studies you've done or results or outliers that have, have been, yeah, would be surprising for people? Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, that one that I just talked about, the one of getting how much deep sleep they get and how quickly, I think that mm. was something that we we didn't really expect. Um, I think the, you know, there's some, there are just some athletes, and I certainly can't name names, but have recently done some sleep monitoring with um, a team, um, one of the athletes you, you would know, but my general rule is that the best athletes that I've ever worked with tend to be the best sleepers. You don't tend to see really bad mm. sleepers as really good athletes. Mm. Um, but this particular athlete was pretty shocking. Um, and and probably not shocking so much in duration, a few bad nights here and there, but just patterns were all over the place. Um, but this athlete's probably had the best season of their life. <laughs> and so then it's really hard because you know, the coaches and all the staff have got the reports and go, you need to sort this player out, look at their sleep. And I'm like, do you want to change this? Like maybe yeah. we could and maybe they could be better, but they're doing pretty damn good. And do we want to mess with that? And I think that's where the challenges come as you go, well, I think we should just let this person be this person because um, yeah. they're nearly the best in the world and let's just let them do it. And maybe they are an anomaly and, you know, just maybe if things start to fall apart or things aren't going as well, we can look to correct it. But right now, if, if it's all about performance and whether you're playing well and whether you're winning, would be changing it. So sometimes like that's a, things become a little bit tricky. And if people do have a problem with their sleep all of a sudden, and because 
to to speak about our circumstances, like Briggsy, my wife, she um she, she when we first met, she used to do this thing called Project Awesome, where she'd wake up to start exercise at six or six thirty, where you'd be at the place for the exercise, um, and unfortunately, my influence has probably well definitely reduced <laughs> her attendance of that, <laughs> but then. After about a year or two, she she's and he, from then until now, she's just exhausted every morning and like really struggles to wake up. So going from someone who would be bouncing out of bed, ready to mm. you know, excited to run to exercise, to suddenly we'll get to weekends and she'll just have to, she'll be there until ten every night every, in the morning, just absolutely mm -hmm. knocked out and really take a long time to get going any day that she does mm. wake up. And mm. we're not, we're, if people are in circumstances like that, what are there, is there a checklist of things they can go through? I and mean, we've talked about regular sleep patterns, making sure you're getting enough, um, no screens. Are there any other things that people can go through to try and figure out what could be triggering or causing yeah, these, uh, these problems? Yeah, um, as you say, looking at habits and patterns and whether, you know, all of a sudden you're going to bed much later, then you, therefore you want to wake up um, much later. Um, lack of morning sunlight um, is generally, like morning sunlight is a thing that triggers our body clock. And I know a lot of people who are morning, who, who sleep in really late, just bringing their, getting them to wake up a little bit earlier to get some sunlight. Now, that's obviously easier where I live, um, a little bit harder in some other parts of the world where the sun doesn't and, come and up And do artificial early. lamps and things, are they that, that have the, the right light yeah. setting, do they work in that respect? They do. Nothing is quite like the sun. When you look at the, the lux, how we measure light, there's nothing that's like sunlight. Nothing comes close to it. But these light boxes and light devices that I know is used a lot in the Northern Hemisphere and um, in, in winter can be really they, – they, they're better than nothing, absolutely. So they can be something. So starting – trying to get some sunlight earlier in the morning can be good. Um, the other thing that um, – you know, it's always worth talking if, if talking to a professional and a medical person. I know, like with women, as as females age, uh, hormones can go all over the place. We know hormones are really associated with sleep, um, and um, you know, progesterone in particular, female hormone, is is related to, to sleep. And sometimes it's a matter of getting the hormones balanced. Um, now, menopause, obviously, way down the track, but lots of you know, that's a you know, when the hormones are almost you know start to become non non-existent a lot of women have a lot of problems with sleep and the symptoms that are around that like hot flushes and all that kind of stuff so sometimes it can be hormonal imbalances in women um, it can be almost like what we're talking about is you've pushed and pushed and pushed and, and your whole life and being someone who's super active and tried to jam everything in and then all of a sudden your body's like had enough of that You've sleep deprived me for 10 years. Um, now mm. it's my time and I'm going to get some, some sleep. So I think it's always nice to, um, to explore with a, you know, with a good doctor, um, around, you know, hormone levels in women particularly. Um, but, you know, if you've, if you've done all, if you looked at all the behaviors, behaviors are all good. You're, you're doing all the right things. You're not having caffeine late. Your room's a good environment, all that kind of stuff. You're not super stressed. You're, you're actually getting a lot of sleep. Um, and you're still feeling bad, um, it's, it's probably worth, you know, chatting a little bit further, especially for women where, yeah, hormones can be, can be fun. And in, in terms of 
food that affects sleep. Mm -hmm. We know that mm -hmm. certain drugs, caffeine, are the, are the big players, but are there any other things that we might not be aware of that could actually be beneficial? Or I mean, other than chamomile tea, that this mm -hmm. dreadful thing that's always shoved upon you, um, are there any other things that do have an impact in a positive or negative way? Yeah, the um, nutrition, and we've actually done a big nutrition and sleep study. We've got another one coming up, and they're tricky to do. And, it, and it's tricky because a lot of the the work is to, to come up with something succinct is, is difficult because everyone uses different ways of measuring sleep, different doses of things, different timing. You know, it's a combination mm. of timing and dose before sleep. But one of the things that I think is is important to consider is that you know, sleep is like a real classical conditioning thing. It's like Pavlov's dog, right? So if you keep doing the same thing before sleep, um, and so whether that's a glass of warm milk, that old mum, you know, what your mum told you when you were a kid, right? If you do that regularly, the body's like, oh, I know what's about to happen. You know, when I have milk two hours before bed or one hour before bed, mm -hmm. I know that sleep's about to happen. And your physiology changes in response to this conditioning, right? So we can use foods to create a habit. Um, if they're something like milk, which actually when you look at it has pretty much the right amount of carbohydrate, the right amount and type of protein um, and some electrolytes in it. So it's probably a really good sleep drink. And if you take it regularly, like so here, kind of whether I'm in, I'm in now, you might have a cold glass of milk. Um, in winter, other places, you might have a warm glass of milk. Mm. Um, so you can – milk is actually – proteins are particularly good. The thing to avoid, apart from caffeine, is, you know, high glycemic index foods right before bed. You tend to get Bitty. that insulin spike. Yeah, yeah, don't, take, <laughs> don't have any lollies before bed. Um, yeah, so you tend to get an insulin spike and then people get a bit buzzed and then they – yeah. So anything um, high GI, too close to bed – High GI foods, you know, two to four hours before bed might work because you might get that insulin spike and then the come down and then you might actually mm. sleep. But um, things, um, yeah, things like um, um, certain herbs, um, milk, certain proteins, low GI carbohydrate before bed is probably all very reasonable things. But, again, it sort of comes down to don't eat too much. You don't want to go to bed full. Um, mm. and trying to digest your food while you're lying down. That's not great. Um, and also, yeah, not um, not going to bed too hungry so that you, when you wake up in the middle of the night, for whatever reason, you're absolutely ravenous. And things like hot baths, hot showers, do, are they mm. effective? Yes, yeah. So um, our ability to sleep is really closely linked to our body temperature. Um, our core body temperature and the difference between our core temperature and our skin temperature. So, um, so again, here where I live, it would be cold showers and cold baths. Um, but in other places, it would be warm baths and warm showers. Um, so generally just getting your body to a, a, a place where it's comfortable um, and where you can eventually lose heat. Because cooling, cooling is really important for sleep. And I had one more question that I've just forgotten. Um, oh, damn it. Uh, okay. Um, amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And what are what are the what, what do you think will be changing in what you're researching in the future? What what, what mm, elements yeah, do we I, still not fully understand? Yeah, we really don't understand. And this is more from a science perspective rather than a practical perspective. We really don't understand the stages of sleep and how they relate to athletes and performance. So we've got some studies starting mm. with that. Um, we really, we've got a study planned for next year, 
these studies would have been done except for COVID. So unfortunately, we've got to wait for these. We don't know the effect of sleep medication on sleep architecture. Almost. That was going to be my question, actually. Sleep oh, Yes. Oh, yeah, I just remember it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the problem with sleeping pills, like any drug, is there's usually a side effect. Um, but what we know about sleeping tablets is that they probably result in about a 20-minute to 30-minute, at most, increase in sleep duration. Mm. Um, and they can fragment sleep. Um, so you tend to not get the deeper sleep. You get you tend to get more of a lighter a lighter sleep. But we don't know we, for the amount of sleep drugs that are prescribed to athletes. We don't have a clue as to what it does to sleep architecture in athletes. But most importantly, we don't know what it does to morning waking. So we know in elderly people they're more likely to have falls and to be groggy and to have headaches in the morning, slower reaction times. We don't know what um, effect it has on athletes. So that's actually our study for next year. But we really um, actively try to get people to identify the source of the problem and why they're not sleeping rather than taking a sleeping pill. Um, that sleeping pills mm. aren't designed for long-term use. They've never been approved for long-term use. They're for the sort mm. of thing where you go, I'm super stressed, something really bad's happened, I've got zero sleep, I'll take something for a few nights that's probably a suitable um or you're jet lagged, it's probably a suitable way of using them. But if you've just got sleep problems, identify what's wrong rather than putting a Band-Aid on it. Because as soon as you stop mm. the, the sleeping pills, you'll go back to where you were, if not worse. Mm. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for, for sharing your knowledge and wisdom. Pleasure. And, no problem. And great. Yeah, great when you chat. do publish that, yeah, well, when you do publish that report, let us know because we'd, we'd love to hear more about it. And yeah, that's um, a fun one. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and do you do you now have the ability where because of your job, if you're ever tired in the office, you just have a little nap and you're like research. I'm just researching. <laughs> exactly. It's like we know the science behind this nap, and it's very important. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this for you, not for me. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, that's well, right. And if people want to kind of reach out to you to follow your research, to ask any questions, anything like that, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, Twitter's probably the Twitter is probably the only social media that I really use. So, um, yeah, I'm just Shona Halson on Twitter. Um, and so, yeah, always happy to always happy to chat. Amazing. Well, thanks for your time. Cool. And you, uh, have a good evening. Yes, have a good day. Thanks, Jada. <laughs> thanks. See ya. <gasps>